I would now like to introduce the president and founder of the Institute of World Politics, Dr. John Lanchowski. Dr. Lanchowski formerly served in the State Department in the Bureau of European Affairs and as a special advisor to the Undersecretary for Political Affairs. From 1983 to 1987, he was Director of European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. In that capacity, he served as Principal Soviet Affairs Advisor to President Reagan. His full bio can be found in your program, but I would like to say that it is his entrepreneurial vision that brings all of us here to graduate on this day, to see that the intelligence community needed something different. And so he embarked on this uh, journey to, to, to found this fine institution from which you graduate. So Dr. Lanchowski. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and good morning, graduates. Uh, I just am delighted to be here, and I'm so happy for all of you. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking the entire IWP community for everything you do to pursue our mission uh, and to make our mission possible in the first place. We have here with us faithful and generous trustees and benefactors who honor us with their presence today. We have our magnificent faculty with their extraordinary dedication to passing on their wisdom to the next generations. We have our tireless and dedicated staff who perform every function of an academic institution so often with grace under pressure. And we have our students who have chosen to study at a school that has not just a professional curriculum but also an ethos that we hope will be ever more contagious. Thank you to everyone. What is IWP's mission? Why are we here? In short, IWP is dedicated to developing leaders who have a sound understanding of four things. The realities of the world, the ethical conduct of the various arts of statecraft, the instruments of national power, the founding principles of the American political economy, and the Western Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian moral tradition. This mission really has two dimensions, a professional one and a, and a philosophical one. The professional one is quite clear. We must know what we, fa what we face in the world, other cultures, foreign ways of thinking, behavior that we think is unreasonable but which others consider to be perfectly reasonable, and various methods of statecraft that are alien to our own culture. Do we develop strategies to cheat on treaties even before we sign them? Other powers do. Do we think it's reasonable to fight and win a nuclear war? Other powers do. Do we think it is acceptable deliberately to kill innocent civilians to serve larger strategic ends? Other powers do. Once we understand such realities, we must then know how to deal with it all. And this entails knowledge of all the arts of statecraft, each of which is like an instrument in an orchestra, which together must be strategically harmonized. One of the reasons for this school's existence is that so many of these instruments were neglected. 
If the instrumentalists are aware that they're part of an orchestra, and if they've developed the capacity for integrated strategic thinking, then there's a greater chance that the music will be harmonious and not discordant. But of course, we need conductors who are capable of integrated strategic thinking. Otherwise, whole-of-government approaches to defending peace and security will never work, and utilizing nonviolent methods of statecraft won't be seriously tried before our leaders decide to resort to armed force. Usually, professional schools of international affairs don't have much of a philosophical content, but IWP does. We attempt as best we can in the course of a two-year program to place our professional curriculum in the context of a larger liberal arts education so that one's professional work can be understood to be an instrument in much larger orchestras, that of the community and that of life itself. Provoking an understanding of these larger contexts, or put, an, uh, put another way, promoting an integrated strategic view of life is the fundamental task of the university. But today, America's universities have been failing at this task at a greater and more distressing rate than ever before. One after another has junked the classical liberal arts curriculum in favor of what I call the 2000 course smorgasbord, where the students just want to eat their dessert and never their vegetables. <coughs> the study of the larger context has been steady, steadily eroding. The study of intellectual history, of American history, of political, economic, diplomatic, and military history has been precipitously declining. The study has, of philosophy has mostly evaporated. The study of civics has already fallen off a cliff. The reading of classic literature that exposes students to the great lessons of life has suffered from similar neglect. Students can graduate from brand-name universities without ever having read the Federalist Papers, Shakespeare, Aristotle, Aquinas, or Thucydides. In the great modern celebration of multiculturalism, fewer and fewer students are studying foreign languages. The proper end of education is the pursuit and discovery of truth. In the larger context, this entails understanding human nature, the existence of moral standards, and the existence of objective truth itself. In his great treatise on higher education, John Henry Newman stressed the importance of pursuing, quote, a comprehensive view of truth in all its branches, of the relations of science to science, of their mutual bearings and their respective values. Such an education educates the intellect to reason well in all matters, to reach out towards truth and to grasp it." Unquote. But today, too much of the academy rejects the existence of objective truth and objective moral standards. Something is said to be true for you, uh, but not for me. What they're saying is, it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. Despite the fact that this very proposition refutes itself, no matter, everything is relative. 
Everything is a matter of personal preference. And how one views a given phenomenon is defined completely subjectively. How do you feel about this or that? And not whether it is true or not, or whether it is good or not. In rejecting truth, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times in today's academy, has been consistently rejecting reason. In the context of today's atmosphere, if you don't conform to the regnant ideology, whatever argument you might make makes no difference. If you don't agree with what is politically correct, as defined by today's academic arbiters, then you must be part of the oppressor class. And today's ideology, which is, if you look at it carefully, a variant of Marxism-Leninism, defines classes according to group identity. I should note here that history's greatest experts on defining individuals, not by their character or their achievements, but by their group identity, were the Nazis and the Soviets. As experience with modern totalitarianism has amply shown, the rejection of reason ultimately imposes a pro pro prohibition on thought itself. IWP cannot remediate knowledge of everything in modern, that the, the knowledge of everything that modern universities have eliminated from their core curricula, but we can do at least a little. Getting our students to contemplate the follies of relativism and subjectivism is one example. Getting them to study more history than they got before is another. We require the study of American founding principles. And if students have already studied them, then they must study comparative ideologies and belief systems. Whereas only 3% of universities require students to take any economics, that subject is part of our core curriculum. It is also our goal to teach our students not what to think, but how to think. And that is just the larger context. Upon such a foundation, our students study how to deal with the greatest threats we face. And here, we've endeavored to achieve what Newman called the real cultivation of the mind, namely to have, quote, the intellect properly trained and formed to have a connected view or grasp of things. We call it integrated strategic thinking. Today, the threats America faces are growing as the full effects of years of disinvestment in diplomacy and defense are making themselves manifest. We are arguably in the midst of three cold wars today, one with radical jihadism, the second with a revanchist Russia run by the 75% by of whose leaders are come out of the KGB, and third with the communist regime in Beijing, a regime with a Marxist-Leninist Maoist ruling party a clinically fascist economy, and an imperialist global agenda. Addressing these challenges is a daunting task, but our graduates know that the first step in meeting them is to face reality squarely, and to tell the truth about these realities, especially to power. If our people understand the full truth of these threats and challenges, we will have the best chance that common sense will prevail and we will mobilize the resources to address them. But this requires moral strength to overcome the temptation to indulge in willful blindness and wishful thinking 
which are amongst the greatest impediments to seeing foreign reality correctly. But willful blindness and wishful thinking are not intellectual problems. They are moral failings. And so it is a huge part of our business to ensure that our students recognize that character development, the cultivation of personal and civic virtues necessary for effective leadership, is the essential ingredient for strategic success. Let us recall these virtues. Those of you who've heard me speak about this before know that I like to quote General MacArthur on what they are in his valedictory address, Duty, Honor, Country. He talks about courage, being resolute and unbending in one's determination to achieve the mission, humility and gentleness in victory, facing up to the stresses of hardship, compassion for those who fall along the way, learning to master yourself before you master others, a heart that is clean and pure in motive, modesty, trustworthiness, honesty and reliability, patience, fortitude, patriotic self-abnegation, and heroic self-sacrifice. MacArthur was describing the virtues that must characterize those leaders who wear the uniform and risk their lives for their country. But we believe that these virtues apply to those who serve in all the capacities of, of, of ensuring peace and security, and that means you, our graduates. The moral choices you make will define your destiny. If you are to end up living a life worthy of self-respect, you must constantly keep in mind the development of your character. And if you start forgetting all of what all those virtues are that I just listed, just remember one lesson. Good character means doing the right thing when nobody is looking. And many of you have heard me said that, say this before, there are two kinds of people, the careerist and the mission-oriented person. The careerist seeks the, the promotion, the money, the credit, the glory, the power. It's all about oneself. Mission-oriented people are there to serve others first and to serve a cause higher than themselves. In doing so, we believe that they will achieve most of the things that the careerist wants, but will never risk sacrificing their honor to get them. IWP's graduates have been going on to do great things for our country and the world. One of them, Lawrence Buckley, class of 2007, has just entered the senior uh, executive service in the FBI and is now senior director of the staff of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board in the White House, one of the most important jobs in the U.S. intelligence community. Scott Cullinane, a member of the class of 2012 and a congressional staff member, managed to prevent the shutdown of the Mandarin and Cantonese broadcasts over the Voice of America, just about the only non-filtered information that reaches the people of China, <clears throat> and restored the funding for these services. Three IWP alumni have been working on the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security uh, Committee, uh, of the Senate's Homeland Security Committee, and were responsible for organizing the first congressional hearing ever on the subject of the war of ideas 
against radical Islamism, a war that has to be fought uh, because we have to be using the non-military instruments and not just going out and trying to kill people. A member of the class of 2006 is now the senior counterintelligence analyst for China in one of the leading counterintelligence services and has done extraordinary work in reviving the U.S. government's capabilities to counter foreign influence operations. One of our senior war college fellows, Army Lieutenant General J.T. Thompson, served as Commandant of the Cadets at West Point and is currently commander of all the land forces of NATO. Just this week, I ran into a member of the class of 2013 in the Pentagon where he is working as a strategic and strategy advisor for the number three man in the Pentagon, the, uh, the, the most important policy position, the undersecretary for policy, and this alum of ours has just contributed to writing the national defense strategy of the United States. Four years out of, just four years or something like that, five years out of IWP. Most of these graduates have advanced to these positions and accomplished great things remarkably early in their careers. We're so proud of them and we look forward to being proud of you, not only for your professional service, but also for your efforts to raise the level of moral leadership in America and the world. You graduates will become the next generation of leaders. Congratulations and God bless you all.